Dead Air by Scott Overton. Previously in Dead Air, as radio personality Lee Garrett struggles to cope with a faltering career and a threat against his life, the first ray of light in a long time has come from a young blind boy and his attractive teacher. But even that taste of hope has turned sour. Now, Chapter 7. Christmas Eve, the snow began on cue, first with small flakes drifting lazily down and then thick clouds that clogged the air, defeating street lamps and pushing garishly primped houses into the hazy distance to transform the mundane street into a picture postcard. Lee let the curtain fall back into place and turned to face the empty apartment. He didn't feel like washing the bowl from his festive dinner of canned stew, but there were still fifteen minutes until a Christmas carol started on TV. He cranked the hot water tap and squirted a few drops of palm olive into the sink. The Muppet Christmas Carol was on another channel, but he didn't want to watch that without Sarah and Jason. The grim black and white of the Alistair Sim version was a better fit for his mood, complemented by a modest single malt and no-name potato chips. He was looking for distraction. Instead, the movie made him uncomfortable. He nearly got up to turn it off, but closed his eyes and just listened to the disembodied voices. Sleep claimed him before Scrooge could find redemption. He awoke with daylight filtered through his favorite scotch glass, prisming bands of color across his stained sweatshirt. Fragments of a dream floated in his mind like dust motes in the air, a party scene, a lonely street, a graveyard, or maybe just an empty field, he couldn't be sure. He saw Michaela in a radio station, but not any of the places he'd worked, and then on the front porch of the home he'd lived in as a teenager, a house she'd never visited in reality. She was pulling at his sleeve, trying to explain something to him, pleading with him. He felt himself distracted for a moment, and then it wasn't Michaela, but Candace Ross reaching her hands toward him in a dark field, with a wind whipping the branches of a willow around her head like wild strands of hair. She was looking at him, but couldn't see him, and his throat wouldn't work when he tried to call out to her. Michaela and Candace? Ghostly Christmas past and Christmas present? No, the future, he decided. The vision of Candace had no root in the here and now. He tried to remember any part of the dream that related to the present, but couldn't. It had no form. No meaning, was that it? His eyes came to focus on the wall clock, watching ten full jumps of the second hand before he pulled his gaze away. Ticking marking nothing. He groaned and swung himself upright, his left foot coming down to crush the potato chip bag. He had no plans for the day, Christmas Day. He'd almost asked Arnott to schedule him for work, but to admit he had no one with whom to share the holiday was a confession of failure he couldn't bring himself to make. A lot of snow had fallen during the night, maybe eight or nine inches. Normally the landlady's son came to shovel the driveway after a storm, but he'd taken her to a relative's place out of town for Christmas. Lee put on his parka and boots. He knew where she kept the snow shovel. The exercise would do him good. The simple exertion swept his mind clean of other thoughts for a time. The snow had stopped, but it was cold. A light breeze made his face tingle. The muted echo of someone else shoveling out of sight down the street reassured him that he wasn't the only one not opening presents around a glittering tree. When the job was done, he walked over to the older couple's driveway next door and shoveled that, too. 
Afterward, he stood for a few minutes blowing clouds of steam into the air while he admired his handiwork, the neat lines of the new snowbanks, the sparkle of sun off tiny crystal surfaces whose sharpness would soon melt and reflect no more, and the very particular pale blue of the sky near the horizon that meant winter and no other time. He seldom stopped to notice such things any more. When he went inside, the TV was about twenty minutes into White Christmas with Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye, together with Rosemary Clooney and, what was her name? He'd used it as a trivia question once, Vera Ellen. They'd just finished singing about snow on the train to Vermont and then disembarked to find there wasn't any snow. He'd always told Michaela it was a sappy movie and wondered if she'd noticed that it was always Lee who tuned it in every year. He microwaved some soup for lunch, dozed a little after that. It was a way to slip out of the stream of meaningful time without having to acknowledge the emptiness of his waking hours. He was idly flipping TV channels looking for another movie when Michaela called from Florida. The kids and I thought we... I mean, we wanted to wish you a Merry Christmas. Her voice sounded unsure. I'm glad we caught you at home. Instead of where the hell else would I be, he said... Merry Christmas to you, too. Um, how's the weather? We've got some new snow. No snow here, she gave a weak laugh. It's not quite warm enough to swim today, but sunny. It doesn't feel like Christmas without snow. But Disney World goes all out. The kids have been enjoying that. Today, well, actually, I was just watching White Christmas. Nobody else wanted to. Sappy movie, but, you know. His throat tightened, and he had to hold the phone away from his face. When he brought it back, Michaela was saying, Lee, are you there? I'm still here. She paused at the sound of his voice, then pressed on, Are you going anywhere for Christmas? Um, actually, Matt and Lynn Miller asked me to come over. I'm going to start getting ready soon. Oh, good. She didn't call him on the lie, a gift in itself. Say hi to them for me. Would you like to talk to Sarah? You bet. He took advantage of the pause to cover the phone and clear his throat. Daddy? Hi, sweetheart. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, too. I I guess Mom told you how warm it is here. Her voice trailed off as if she'd already run out of things to say. Listen, Sarah, the night you came into town, I'm really sorry I missed you, sweetheart. Our staff Christmas party was that night, and I just got home too late. I tried calling your cell, but... That's okay, Daddy. You don't have to explain. I do have to explain. I would a hundred times rather have been with you that night. It drives me crazy to have you guys so far away. But your mother... Well, anyway. I know, Daddy. I miss you, too. Well, we'll get together sometime soon. But I better let you talk to Jace. She passed the phone without waiting for a reply. Hi, Dad. His son's voice sounded older than he remembered. Hi, Jace. Merry Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Uh, one of these days you're going to have to try this place over Christmas, Dad. It's pretty cool. I'm glad. And he was. I've got presents for you and Sarah, but I'd rather not mail them. Yeah, well, Mum says she's going to bring us over when we get back. She's waving that she wants to talk to you again. Anyway, have a good Christmas, Dad. You too. The silence was like a hole. Then Michaela came back on the line. Lee? I was thinking I'd bring Jason over to stay with you on Tuesday, if that's all right. Sarah's got a ski trip with some friends that they've planned for months. Is that okay? Sure, Tuesday would be fine. Uh, tell, 
Tell Sarah to have a good time. I guess we'll see each other one of these days. Yeah, we'll figure something out. Silence returned. There was nothing to say and too much to say. I guess I'd better let you go. Michaela? Yes? Have a good Christmas. You too. No, Michaela. I mean it. Her voice softened. I do too, Lee. See you soon. He sat there listening to the dial tone for twenty seconds, then slowly returned the phone to its cradle. Whether it was from optimism or masochism, he couldn't be sure, but that night he communed with the spirits of Christmas past, the Garrett household of years gone by in grainy VHS images transferred to DVD so Michaela could keep the original tapes. Frenetic figures swimming through a sea of discarded wrapping paper, a flash of Jason's face filling the lens, the camera pulling back to reveal a pewter set of Dragon Quest figurines, Sarah holding a white smocked dress to her chest, then waving a plastic-covered tray of multicolored patches, her first makeup kit, purchased over Lee's objections because he couldn't bear for his little girl to grow up. Michaela made a face of pretended annoyance and held up a hand to block the camera. Her hair was disheveled, she wore no makeup, a close-up even revealed faint lines where the pillow had creased her skin overnight. His heart ached for her. He pressed the stop button and sent the machine into fast-forward, then randomly punched play to see what would be revealed. Father's Day, the next year. Not for the first time, but ultimately the last, Sarah and Jason had hidden his present and concocted a treasure hunt with a trail of clues on scraps of paper. Time flies meant the next clue was hidden under an old wooden duck with a clock in its belly. For the record sent him looking under the cover of the dusty turntable still taking up space in the entertainment unit. Then, just as the Lee on the TV screen was about to discover the first part of his present, he remembered it vividly, a bulky white sweatshirt that boldly proclaimed, World's Greatest Dad. The room closed in on him, the edges of his vision turning gray. He stumbled to the door and pitched to his knees in the snow, sucking lungfuls of icy air. He couldn't fall asleep that night. Hell, he hadn't done anything all day. His eyes drifted slowly around the room and came to rest on a flash of gilded lettering on the spine of a small book. He stepped to the shelf. It was The Princess Bride by William Goldman, Michaela's favorite book. How could she have overlooked that? He'd have to give it back to her on Tuesday. He lay the book on the dinner table so he wouldn't forget, but the front cover flipped open and he found himself reading in spite of himself. Sometime during the night he drifted off to sleep with visions of princesses, swordplay, and right and wrong as clear as black and white. He was glad to be back at work on Boxing Day. He made a lot of wordplay involving the station's call letters CTBX the box. You didn't pass up an opportunity like that. After eight o'clock, he asked listeners to call in with their favorite Christmas memories. Software let him record the calls and edit them before playing them back as if they were live. The phones were slow, most people had better things to do, but each call triggered more and many of the stories were heartwarming. People were often broke at Christmas time, but cash windfalls would arrive in surprising ways. Loved ones would unexpectedly return from war to show up on a doorstep Christmas morning. Romance would blossom, old friendships would be rekindled. They were stories that propagated the mythology of Christmas time, but you wanted to believe them. He didn't air a call from a woman in a nursing home. My first Christmas here, everyone came, she said. My son, my daughters, their families. They said I needed the nurses to watch me so they couldn't take me home, but at least they came. 
Her voice quavered. Last year my children came, but none of their children, and not for long. I know I haven't looked so good lately. I lost weight here. She paused again. Lee simply waited. This was my third year, my third Christmas, and nobody came. He heard her break into tears. No one at all. I suppose they thought I didn't know what day it was. Maybe they'll come today. Do you think so? He hesitated. That's probably it. I'm sure they will. He let her talk until she ran down and her tears stopped. Then she softly thanked him for his kindness and hung up. He felt like a coward for not playing the call. Instead, he just reminded listeners to think of shut-ins and others who might be lonely at Christmas. It was a cop-out, but only the latest in a long line. Unbidden, a line from a Gilbert O'Sullivan song came to his mind about all the broken hearts in the world that could never be mended, left unattended. He fielded another couple of calls that were barely worth airing. Then the phone lines went quiet for a while, and he was content to leave it that way. He played more songs and talked less, pacing himself to last the extended holiday shift until noon. After nine o'clock, he got a call from Doug Rhodes on location at a Boxing Day sale in Espanola. The nearby town was too far to use the remote transmitter, so Rhodes did the report by phone line. Sometime later, the phone flashed again. Good morning. Is that you, Lee? It's me. Oh, good. Merry Christmas, Lee. Did you have a great Christmas? The woman's voice was fuzzy. Maybe she'd just woken up, or had some kind of speech impediment. Sure. How about you? Could have been better. Didn't do many Christmassy things. Don't have anybody to do them with this year. How about you? You're not married anymore, are you? Uh, no, not anymore. Why the hell would she ask that? Nobody should be alone at Christmas. Hey, maybe we should get together. What do you think? He'd identified the sound of her sloppy sibilance. The woman was drunk at 9.30 in the morning. I've seen you lots of places, she said. You're cute. People say I look a lot like Elizabeth Taylor. Lots of womanly curves in the right places. Maybe you could play Santa Claus and stuff a big present up my chimney. She broke into a wicked laugh. Lee felt a shudder, but tried to keep his tone light. That's very flattering, he began, but I've got plans. Oh, come on, she interrupted. I'll bet a healthy man like you could use a long ride in a good saddle. And I am good. When do you get off work? God, no, she might wait outside the building. Today, not till one o'clock, maybe later. What about tonight? A hot woman sure beats a cold bed. The husky whisper was full of yearning, pathetic, but also attractive. Was his body really responding to it? I've got to go. I hope you find someone. Have a good holiday. He broke the line before she could say anything more, then leaned back and wiped a hand slowly down his face. Mother of God, was that what his life had come to? Was it just an alcoholic fantasy, or was the woman responding to some need she'd heard in his voice? Which of them was the pathetic one then? He slowly sat forward, and something on the control board nagged for his attention. The volume slider for the phone. It was a quarter of the way up and switched on. He slapped it hard like swatting a wasp. His throat went dry. He must have left it there after Rhodes cut in. Ice water ran down his spine. Could the drunk woman's call have got on the air? The phone line was flashing again. Rhodes or her calling back? Good morning, CTBX. He was relieved to hear a man's voice on the other end. Yeah, uh, what I was wondering was if you guys might have another radio station breaking in on you. 
alarm bells. Why would you think that? Well, I was just listening to that last song, and I heard something in the background. Voices. I'm not sure, but I thought I made out the name Santa Claus, and I don't know, uh, one of the voices sounded kind of like you, though. A hint of accusation. He'd heard more than he was letting on. Lee felt a prickling under his arms. Huh, I didn't hear anything here, he said, but I was out of the room for a minute. Sometimes a two-way radio from a taxi or something else close by can get picked up by a radio receiver. That happens to our monitor system all the time. That part was true, but the fragments of speech rarely lasted more than seconds. Probably something your radio picked up. Well, it sounded more like a phone conversation. There it was. He knew what he'd heard, and he was trying to draw Lee into a confession. I'll keep an ear out, just in case, but thanks for calling. Have a happy new year. Sure, okay. You too. The man gave in and hung up. Lee let out a long sigh of relief and realized he had a case of the jitters, not from caffeine. A phone call like that, unintentionally put on the air, could be the end of a career. Noon finally came, and he carefully scanned the parking lot through a window. No sign of the drunk woman, or anyone else. He was about to leave when he heard someone call his name. How's it hanging, my friend? Vernon Anishwabek hosted an alternative jazz show on Z104 Sunday nights. His deep voice matched a slow smile that creased the edges of dark brown eyes. It's hanging kind of dejectedly, Vern. Not enough action lately. I thought you white guys' peckers just always looked like that. The two men burst into laughter. Anishwabek appeared to be in his fifties, but it was hard to be sure. His shiny hair was at least half gray, pulled neatly back into a ponytail, and his face was deeply lined in places. He was a professor of native studies at Laurentian University, but Lee had never seen him in anything but blue jeans and loose-fitting shirts with hand-woven vests. Yet his almost new pair of Nike Airs didn't seem out of place either. You got time to shoot the shit? I was just heading for the prod studio to get my show together. Sure, yeah. It wasn't as if Lee had anywhere to go. They sauntered down the hall. You have a good Christmas? Lee hesitated. He'd never been less than honest with Vern. There was something about the man. You could tell him things. But bullshit would make him walk away without another word. Lee had seen it happen. Pretty shitty, actually. Michaela went to Florida with the kids. And her boyfriend. That sucks. If I'd known, you could have had dinner with us. You have a big turkey dinner and all that? No, actually, I go out and shoot a bear. Then after I've dragged it back to our lodge and Sheila has given the hide a good chew, Lee held up a hand and laughed. Okay, okay, the truth is I thought you were Jewish. Anish Wabek roared. Hey, you're a funny guy. I just might start listening to your show one of these years. The laughter was like a tonic. Before he knew it, Lee had spilled his guts about Michaela, the loneliness, and even about the hate letter and the incidents since then. Anish Wabek listened as if the studio had become a shrink's office. His manner somehow massaged the quiet into a zone of comfort instead of a barrier. Have you ever talked to Michaela about the breakup of your marriage? Ever told her that you're still in love with her? It wouldn't bring her back to me. That's not really my point. You've got separate lives now. But you used to say she was the best thing that ever happened to you. Is that no longer true because you're divorced? Lee slowly shook his head. No, it's still true. Then you don't toss away one of the best things that ever happened in your life, my friend. Tell her how you feel. Find a way. Bring each other some joy instead of pain. 
Lee didn't say anything, and Anishwabek was content to let the silence stretch, shuffling some papers and tapping at the computer keyboard. Finally, he said, What did you do about the hate letter? Told the cops about it. They weren't interested. Most of them are good heads. A few are pricks, but even the good ones are overworked. Might have been that. I don't know what else I can do, though. I've never been threatened before. Yeah, it's a bitch. Maybe you'll believe that I know a bit about racists. He gave a sad smile and paused to choose his words. Imagine you've got a hole in your gut, an ulcer that sucks the pleasure out of life. Could be from a bad upbringing, abuse, could be just that you want what others have and you can't get it. Then one day it occurs to you that all of your problems are caused by someone else. Suddenly, all the regret you ever felt can be blamed on that one group. Those people have what you want, therefore they must have taken your share. You become obsessed with that thought. It becomes a fire in your belly, and every bad thing you draw to yourself is fuel. He let the image hang in the air. Then his voice became still softer. No logic to it, and no cure either. Lee looked into his friend's eyes. No cure. So once they start, they don't stop. Sounds like you're saying I should make up with Michaela and get the kids back into my life before something happens to me. The other man hesitated and then rumbled, Life's too short, my friend. Life's too short. In Chapter 8 of Dead Air, Lee faces a serious risk to his life and a police detective is finally assigned to the case, but his troubles are far from over. Be sure to subscribe to Dead Air, or if you can't wait for the full podcast, buy the book by visiting scottoverton.ca. Thanks again to audionautics.com for the music, and please join me for the next episode. I'm Scott Overton.